started our uh, our study there uh, last Sunday, and I'm excited to to jump back in uh, this Sunday. Uh, and as you're as you're turning there, uh, many of you are familiar with what a uh, a foyer is uh, in a building uh, as a large room uh, that opens up uh, when you first walk in the door. Uh, that foyer, that room is going to be uh, the room that is kind of your first impression uh, of the building, and it's going to be the room that opens up into uh, every other room uh, in the house. Uh, and public buildings, such as uh, government uh, buildings or theaters or hotels, usually have a, a very large uh, foyer, and uh, the information in the foyer is going to be dictated by what the building is used for. So when you walk into the foyer uh, of a movie theater, uh, what is it that you see there? You see movie posters and, and upcoming uh, events. You see the concession stands. You, you see those things that pertain to your experience there in that building. When you, when you walk into the, the lobby or the foyer of a hotel, uh, you're going to see things that contribute to the hospitality that, uh, hospitality that guests experience when they're there. You're going to see couches and chairs. Uh, you may see bars and restaurants, things to, to accommodate and be hospitable to the guests. And, uh, if you ever go into, uh, the city hall of Meridian, uh, right over here, just a couple blocks away, uh, you'll see, uh, the history of Meridian. There'll be several different uh, exhibits that tell you how the, the town came about and the history of City Hall and, and various information according to uh, what the building is. Uh, and as we, as we begin to study John's Gospel, uh, today we're going to begin to step into the foyer of the Gospel. Uh, and this is going to be our, our first impression as, you, uh, as we walk in, verses 1 to 18 uh, are the, the prologue. Now, this is going to be our, our first impression uh, of what John is going to uh, teach us in this gospel. This is going to be where he introduces us to all of the themes. This is going to be the room that leads into all of the other rooms in the gospel. And all of the truths that, that John is going to lay out for us in the 21 chapters are really going to be introduced to us here in these 18 verses. And as you have your, your bulletin there uh, with you, uh, on the back of your, your bulletin, on the back of your sermon notes, what you'll have is uh, kind of a, a chart, a, a paper that says, hey, this is an overview of John's gospel. So before we, before we get to the, the lobby of the building, we, let's, let's pause and look at the whole building from the outside. Say, so what is this building comprised of and what does it look like? Well, the, the big theme of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the singular message uh, that John wants us to understand, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is worthy of our worship uh, and of our submission as the Lord and as our Savior. So that is the big theme of the gospel. And then uh, as we looked at last week, John is writing to to share the gospel, to introduce other people to Jesus Christ. That is his goal. We saw that uh, in verses uh, 30 and 31 in chapter 20. Now, that's where we began last week. And then uh, the big picture of the gospel, it would divide neatly into two sections. Okay? Chapters 1 through 12 are all about the signs that Jesus is performing. Well, what is it that authenticates who he is and what he has come to do? Uh, so you can call that the, the book of signs. And the last uh, chapters, 13 through 21, are all about uh, Jesus preparing for his death. Now, you see that the first 12 chapters at the bottom of that chart, they, 
they, they comprise and they cover a period of, of multiple years. About three years are covered in the first 12 chapters. And then uh, the author slows down and emphasizes the last night of Jesus' life. Uh, chapters 13 through 17 are all focused upon uh, the last supper, the last meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And then he goes uh, to be uh, arrested, tried, uh, and ultimately crucified and resurrected uh, in 18 through 20. Uh, and throughout the, the course of what he's, uh, John's going to introduce us to Jesus, there's going to be many themes that are going to become recurring themes throughout the book, such as light and darkness and the contrast between them, uh, life and death, faith and testimony. And all of these concepts are going to be seen in this prologue. Uh, and if if you look with me at just kind of the, the paragraphs of the prologue, chapter 1, verses eight, 1 through 18, kind of form three sections. Section, uh, the first section would be the essential nature of the word. Who is Jesus? In verses 1 through 5. Read along with me there. John says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That introduces us to who Jesus is, and then it's going to tell us about how he was announced by John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So he was announced by John the Baptist, and then he was rejected by the world. Verses 9 through 11. The true light which, came, which gives light to everyone has, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was, not made, was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we have who Jesus is, what happened when he came into the world, he was announced, rejected by many, and received by some. And then verses 14 through 18. The incarnation exp explains and connects how the word is identified as Jesus Christ. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, who has made him known. And what we see in this prologue is that if we truly want to know who God is, if we want to have a relationship with God, we have to know his son, Jesus Christ, because it is Jesus Christ who tells us and explains God to us. 
And today, as I, uh, or this week, as I stepped into this foyer and began to prepare, uh, I kept trying to think that I could do more than I could, uh, or more than I initially planned. First, I was going to do verses 1 through 5. And I kind of looked, okay, how big is that room? That room's really big. Uh, and I said, well, maybe I just do 1 through 3. No, that room's still too big. So what we're actually going to talk about today is just verses 1 and 2. Uh, in this prologue, in uh, these first two verses in the Gospel of John. Uh, and some of you might look at these verses and, and groan. You might be thinking, why do I spend so much time talking about two little verses in Scripture? Some of you may be coming, you may be, you may be hurting, you may be thinking, I have situations and problems in my life that I need solutions to right now. You may be thinking, hey, I need solutions for my marriage. I need tips for my parenting. Now, I need some, some secrets to success in the workplace. I need wisdom for everyday decisions. And that's a good thing to desire change. That's a good thing to, to come wanting help and to come looking for help from God and His Word. And we firmly believe that God's Word is completely sufficient. Everything that you are facing can be answered by what Scripture has to say. It is sufficient, and it tells us all that we need to know for life and godliness. But all of the wisdom of Scripture, all that it tells us to obey, and all that it calls us to respond to, is built upon the truths that we see here in verses 1 and 2. See, we won't apply the wisdom and the solutions that the Bible gives to us if we don't believe that Jesus is God. If we are not absolutely convinced that he is the creator and sustainer of everything, why should we obey him? Why should I follow him? Why should I worship him as God if I'm not absolutely convinced? So I can't, I can't tell you to, to hear you know, four ways to improve your marriage or three ways to, to have a better parenting relationship. But those things are results of believing first and foremost in Christ. So my sermon this morning, the, the, the message of God's word this morning is not a how-to message. It is a who-is message. And that is what we first and foremost need to be convinced of. Who is Jesus? And as we looked at last week, why did John spend so much time? Why did he write 21 chapters? Why did he write a miniature biography of Jesus to introduce us to him? Why did he spend so much time? Because this is the most important question that we will ever face. Who is Jesus? And will I believe in him? Will I trust in him for my salvation? That is what this book is about. And we have to come to grips with these first two verses. Because these first two verses, as they are the, the foyer, the entryway into the remainder of the building, we have to understand everything else that comes in the Gospel of John according to what we see here. We have to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do. Not who we want Jesus to be or who the world says Jesus is, but who he truly is as revealed in Scripture. And as we looked at and as I spoke last week, what we believe about Jesus is just as important as believing in him. He is to be the object of our faith and the content of our faith. What we believe about him is to be rooted and grounded in the words of Scripture. So what exactly do we need to believe about Jesus? And what does John the Apostle want us to understand about him? And this morning, what I 
what I want to look at is three fundamental and all-important truths about Jesus. And they are fundamental and all-important because if you remove these truths from the Bible, there is no Christianity. If you take them out, Christianity crumbles. And there's no reason for us to worship Jesus. There's no reason for us to follow him if he is not God. So I want to look at these two verses again. Let's read them together, and then we will look at these three fundamental truths of who Jesus is. John begins, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the first fundamental truth that we see in that first statement in verse 1 is that Jesus existed before the beginning. Jesus existed before the beginning. And it's interesting, as you look at the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that, that Mark begins his Gospel. He kind of speeds past the first 30 years of Jesus' life. He speeds past all of that and says, all right, here's the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, and then here's his ministry. Mark is a Gospel of action. Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then this, and then this. Then he was betrayed, crucified, risen. Mark's Gospel goes so fast. But Matthew and Luke, where do they begin? They, they backtrack a little bit say, hey, you know what? This is also important. They begin not at Jesus' baptism, but at his birth, right? As Christmas approaches, it'll be here within 100 days. Uh, we, we will be familiar more and more with Matthew and Luke's accounts of the birth of Jesus because that's, that's the time of year that we all return to those and read those and look at them. And, and Matthew and Luke said, hey, we need to understand the life of Jesus, and it began, there was, there's a, a the prophetic background to Jesus coming into the world as the Savior. But John's gospel begins somewhere else. John's gospel goes back even further, and he begins with the beginning. And as you read those first three words, in the beginning, what, what book of the Bible do you immediately think of? Genesis. Right? We're familiar with that. The Bible begins, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And and John's aware of that. He's aware that those are very familiar words and those will immediately spark some recognition in our minds. And he brings us back to that point, to the very beginning, making a connection that, hey, in the beginning, the word, we haven't been introduced to who this word is yet. He just says, in the beginning was the word. But how is that possible? So we're immediately presented with something. So how can the word exist in the beginning? Because in the beginning there was nothing and then God created everything. So we're immediately presented with something about this word. He either is with God or he is God. Somehow, some way. And what John's going to affirm is that he's both. That Jesus, the word, is with God and he was God. But maybe John is speaking about another beginning. Somebody say that, well, how, how is it possible that the Word was with God in the beginning? Well, the, the Word here, we're introduced to this, this habit of John the Apostle. What he likes to do is he likes to do these play on words, these double meanings, uh, things that can mean two, uh, two things at once. And, and the idea of the beginning is also the idea of an origin. And, and so what, what John is writing is not a beginning, 
the, po- the possibility of that. This is the beginning of all beginnings. And therefore, this word that he is introducing us to is eternal, is pre-existent. He says, in the beginning was the word. And that emphasis of, hey, in the beginning was. So as John brings us into the, the lobby, he brings us into the, the foyer, he's going to be very intentional about his word usage, about what he says here. Uh, and he, in these 18 verses of the prologue, he's very specific on on the use of two words. Uh, one wor- word is the verb of being, the idea of to be, which is translated here as was, because it's in the past. Uh, and the other word is going to be the idea of becoming. Okay, And, and the verb of, of being, that Jesus was, points to continuous action in the past without, a, without any concept of a beginning to that. And he just says, in the beginning was. And if you look at these two verses, we see the word was occurring four times. There is a verb of being, continuous action without a beginning point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Over and over again, of pointing to that Jesus is not a created being, He just was. And then John uses this second word, this idea of becoming, and he uses it intentionally to say that, hey, this is when something came into existence. And he uses it in John chapter, or chapter 1, verse 3. And it's not as clear in the ESV as it is in, in the New American Standard. So I'll quote from the New American Standard. John 1, 3, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has not come into being, that has come into being. And then again in verse 6, it says, There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. And then famously in chapter 1, verse 14, The word became flesh so the 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 word that was existent in eternity past became an event and he became he changed something he became flesh and dwelt among men and this this distinction between the words is important because becoming implies something that being does not becoming implies change for instance seeds become plants engaged couples become married couples Teenagers eventually become safe drivers, right? Hopefully, that's every parent's prayer. And here in the Treasure Valley right now, farms are becoming subdivisions, right? The idea of becoming implies change, transition. And if John wanted to say that the the word that he speaks of, the word, became God at some later point, he could have said that. He could have been really clear about that. But John chose these words specifically to say, hey, Jesus didn't have a beginning. That he existed eternally before the beginning. John is very intentional about this. The word did not have a point where he came into being. He just simply always was. And this is so key. So in the beginning was the word. Without any point of origin, the word was. And it brings us, what is the word? Because at this point, when, 
when John just begins his gospel this way, he seems to to just immediately throw the word at us. Like we're supposed to know what that is. You're like, why, why are you saying that? What does that mean? Uh, and in the Greek, the word is logos. That is the Greek word that is used there. And many trees have died as biblical scholars have tried to explain what the logos is. And why did John choose that word? Because again, he's starting his gospel and he chooses this word. And you're like, that's kind of vague. That's kind of ambiguous. Why are you using that word? Some of you may be thinking of the princess pride. I do not think that means what you think it means. What, what, is, what is John saying when he says the word and when he's acting as if we should understand the word? And what that means. Some scholars think that that John is using that term logos because it was a very important and significant term in Greek philosophy. They're saying, oh, he's he's trying to to bring in philosophers and reason with them and argue with them. And you know what? That could be true. There could be a little bit of that background element in there. But I think there's a a stronger context uh, and a greater foundation that John is expecting his readers to know and understand. That's just simply in the Old Testament. The word of God is very significant in the Old Testament. And when John writes as a Jew, speaking to Jews that he wants to to know and trust Jesus as their Messiah, I think he's pointing back to the word in the Old Testament. And why do I think that? And think with me on the role of the word of God in the Old Testament. How did God use the word in the Old Testament? It was the means that God used to create the world. Think with me to the Genesis account. If you, if you open to Genesis 1 and you just, uh, you look at your Bible, it's laid out in paragraphs, and you look at the beginning of each paragraph. How does it begin? Well, turn with me. Genesis 1. Look there, this would, this would be really simple. So verse 3. How does it begin? It says, and God said. Look at verse 6. How does it begin? And God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, I'm sensing a pattern here. What did God use to create? His word. And what's amazing is if you look inside of those paragraphs, it says, and God said. And then later on it says, and it was so. So whatever it is that God spoke, it happened. The means that God used to create was speech, words. He used the word to create the world. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So with that background, God used the word to create. Secondly, God used the words as the means to reveal himself to mankind. How do we know who God is? Because he spoke to us. He used the word. Turn with me over to to 1 Samuel. Book in the in the Old Testament introducing us to the life of David. But it also tells us some background in in Israel before David became king. See, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, there's a problem in the land of Israel. It says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, 
and there was no frequent vision. So what's the problem in Israel? There's no word from the Lord. There's no prophet giving them guidance and direction. There's no prophet that God is using to speak to his people. Now flash forward, just look now at the end of the chapter. So the beginning of the chapter, the problem is there is no word from the Lord. But look at verse 21. It says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. By what? By the word of the Lord. How did God reveal himself to his people? Through his word. So in the Old Testament, we see God uses his word to create and to reveal himself. And then thirdly, we see that God used his word to save, to bring about salvation. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Again, in Ezekiel 37, in in a prophecy about how he was going to bring new life to the nation of Israel, God gives these words to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37 verses 4 through 6. He says, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. He's saying, hey, make this prophecy about how I'm going to speak these words and bring physical life to them. Make this prophecy, and that's a picture of how God is going to bring spiritual life to the nation of Israel. God's word is what brings life and salvation. That is what we see in the Old Testament. D.A. Carson summarizes it this way. He says, in short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation revelation and salvation and the personification of that word makes it suitable for john to apply it as a title to god's ultimate self-disclosure the person of his own son so think about this way by by referring to jesus as the word john is pointing to him as the one who will be god's instrument now to create to save and to for the third one and to reveal himself uh, so that Jesus is now God's means of revelation salvation and creation we are the new creation in Christ the church uh, and that is God, Jesus is the means for all of that to take place that he is the perfect revelation and picture of who God the Father is we can't see God the Father he's spirit but if we want to know who he is, we have to look to Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, that, that Jesus is the one who makes the Father visible and gives us understanding about who God the Father is. So that was a whole lot of theology, right? We can come up for air now. All right, there's a a lot of theology there in that little statement. 
But now we have to ask, why is this so important? Why should this matter to you today? Because the beginning matters. And inseparable from the beginning is who was there in the beginning. And that question of was Jesus there? Because that, the answer to that question has other implications. Is Jesus a creature, meaning that at some point he was created, or is he the creator? Is he worthy of my worship because he's the creator of all things? Or is he something that else that was made? That is the most important question. Because if Jesus is a creature, if we're going to view Jesus as a, a creature created at some point in time, then he's not worthy of our worship. Because the Bible says that we are to worship God alone. So seen Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. Again, something that John wrote. He's interacting with an angel. 22, 8 and 9 says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So here's the key. If Jesus is a creature, if he is a created being, should we direct worship to him? Absolutely not. And if Jesus is a created being, what should he do? If we want to worship him, what should he do? He should do exactly like this angel did. When John wanted to fall down and worship the angel, what did the angel do? Whoa, 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 stop. You, you can't do that. Worship God. He alone is worthy of worship. And if Jesus is a created being, he's not worthy of our worship, and he's unable to save us. Because the Bible says, who alone is able to save? God. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord only. This is what hangs in the balance here. If Jesus is created, if he existed in the beginning, is he the creature or is he the creator? Is he worthy of our worship? Is he able to save me? Those are questions of the utmost importance. And it should hinge upon our faith. Everything hinges upon this, of who Jesus is. Should I worship him. And we have to be convinced of this, like I said. If you're not convinced of this, there's no way you're going to follow Jesus' instructions in anything else. And you shouldn't if you're not convinced of this. But this is what we must wrestle with first and foremost. This is the foundation of our faith, who Jesus is. That is the first fundamental truth, that Jesus existed before the beginning. The second fundamental truth that we see in these two verses is that Jesus existed with God before the beginning. If you turn back to the Gospel of John with me. The second statement in verse 1 says, And the Word was with God. It's a very simple statement, right? And it's not that much different from the, from the previous statement. It says the Word was with God. And, and the whole meaning and understanding of this hinges upon a single word, a single preposition, with. Because with that single word what John does is two things. He creates a distinction between the Word and God. right? Because if, if someone is with someone, uh, you can't be with someone and be someone at the same time. right? I, I can be with my wife, but I can't also be my wife. 
right? There, there's, there's, the, the word with immediately distinguishes a relationship. It, it creates two parties that are in relationship with one another. So it creates a distinction, that little word with. So the word and God are two persons. And then it describes the personal relationship between the word and God. And the English translation here does not paint the the, the picture in color as well as the Greek translation. And one pastor says that the the idea conveyed in in the Greek is that of two personal beings facing each other and having uh, intellectual dialogue. That's the idea, that in eternity past, the Word was with God, interacting with God, having fellowship with God. And how do I know it's from eternity past? Well, look at verse 2. John basically repeats himself in verse 2. He says, He was in the beginning with God. It's basically repeating that middle clause in in the first verse and saying, let me, let me expand it and give a time to it, that in eternity past, God the Father, God in these verse, verses, and the Word, Jesus Christ, the Son, had perfect fellowship and relationship with one another. And by repeating it, he's emphasizing it. This is important. This is something that we need to, to catch And it's something that we're going to see throughout the gospel of John. That Jesus is multiple occasions going to point to the unity, the fellowship, the relationship that he has with God the Father. John 17, 5, in in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So it wasn't just with each other. It wasn't just God and the Word with one another. They shared, in essence, they shared glory. They were God. And and oftentimes, we don't think about this enough. As Christians, we, we are typically very moved as we think about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Am I right? It has to move us emotionally and spiritually to think that, hey, somebody else died for me to save me, taking my place. He received what I deserved, right? We often think of that and are spiritually and emotionally moved by that, but oftentimes we don't necessarily think about what Jesus gave up to come to the earth. We don't necessarily think about that as frequently. Now, there's going to be uh, in the wake of Hurricane Florence, what are many people going and doing right now? They're going to help. And, and when you go and, and you travel a great distance to, to help someone else, is that a sacrifice on your part? Absolutely. You're giving up something to be there. And that is exactly what we see here. What did Jesus give up to become a man? gave up glory, eternal glory with the Father. We often don't necessarily think of that as a sacrifice. That's something that he chose to lay aside. But that was extremely, there's, no, there's nothing greater than having intimate fellowship with God the Father. That's what heaven will be. We get to be with God for eternity. And yet Jesus gave that up to come and give his life for us. And not just to, to come and hang out with us, but to come down to the earth 
to live a perfect life, to be arrested unjustly, to be tried unjustly, to be then crucified, murdered unjustly, and then to rise again. He endured all of that for us. Philippians chapter 2 speaks of all that Jesus gave up. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning he wasn't just going to hold on to that and never let it go. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oftentimes we, we focus so much on what Jesus did on the earth and we forget what he did in leaving heaven in humbling himself and emptying himself. The idea is kind of uh, subtraction by addition. So when you're God and you're infinite uh, in every way and you become a man, there's naturally things that have to be limited. And in doing that, that is how Jesus emptied himself. He didn't lay aside every aspect of his, of his deity. He's just naturally limited. Again, subtraction by addition of finiteness. And we need to, to dwell on this and think about it. And did you realize that we already sang about it today? And that song, And Can It Be? It says, He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, he emptied himself to show his love and bled for Adam's race. And that, we need to understand, is amazing love. And our response to that is what? How, how can this be? How can, how can the God who existed in eternity past, who had perfect fellowship with himself within the Trinity, give all of that up and come to save me? How glorious is that? That Jesus would give all of that up to come to earth to die for sinners, to die for us. And so within this little statement, that the word was with God, we see the relationship within the Trinity. And we also see something, something about God's nature is revealed to us. That God himself is personal and God is relational. So why is that important? That God being those two things, personal and relational, relational who does he now want to have a relationship with us that's a part of his nature that's a part of his character that there's relationship and fellowship within the trinity and how is that relationship going to be established with sinful mankind if we have sinned against god if we've rebelled against him as our creator as the one who's given us life and breath and everything how can we be reestablished, reconciled to him well Look at John chapter 1, verse 12. We again see this in the prologue, in the message that John gives to us. It says, But to all who did receive him, all who looked to Jesus in faith, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, God is a personal and relational God, and he desires to have relationship with us. All who believe in Christ, we now have relationship with God. What do we now viewed as and brought into his family as children. We can now have relationship with God, the one who has created everything and who rules over everything, and that there is relationship within this Godhead. And he has sent the word to die for us.
that Jesus existed with God before the beginning. That's the second fundamental truth here. And then the third, that Jesus is God and has always been God. We see this at the end of verse 1. It says, and the word was God. Now this, this statement has created so much controversy in the church, throughout church history. This is maybe the most hotly debated uh, verse in all of the Bible. Uh, this church, or this verse has almost split the church on a couple of different occasions in church history. But this famous, this statement has been famously mistranslated by the New World Translation, which is the official Bible translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And this simple statement, the word was God, they translate as the word was a God. All right? Now that's a very, very big difference. A single letter changes all of the theology of Scripture. And they translate it that way because they say in the, in the Greek text that there is no definite article. So the definite article is the, uh, and the indefinite article is a. So if I say, give me a chair, I just mean, hey, give me any chair. The first one you can grab, lend it to me. But if I say, give me the chair, I'm being very specific. And because it doesn't say that Jesus was, or the word was the God, they say, well, we, we should translate it as the word was a God, because there's no definite article. And while that is grammatically possible, and I don't want to bore you with grammar. Some of you are like, I don't, I hate English grammar. Don't make me, don't make me talk about Greek grammar. So I, so I won't get into, to everything, but this is so important. Uh, and it, it changes the meaning of scripture so significantly that we have to, we have to pause and look at it just, just briefly. Uh, and so here, here's why some, some reasons uh, you can think through of why the word was a God would be incorrect. Number one, uh, John the Apostle is Jewish. What do Jews believe? Do they believe in, a, in the pantheon of gods or in one God? So, so if, if John says and intended this to be that the word was a God, he's immediately departing from all of his Jewish heritage. He's immediately creating a second God and he's becoming a polytheist rather than a monotheist. Okay, secondly, if John had used the definite article, if he had said the word was the God, he would have immediately contradicted himself. How? Well, what did he just say in the second portion of verse 1? He said the word was with God. But then if he goes and says the word was the God, he's being really specific, and there's no possibility of translating relationship within the Trinity. And so he would immediately contradict himself if he uses the, and then... Ultimately, Greek grammar allows for having a definiteness without the article. And John is not merely saying that Jesus is divine. Elsewhere, people have tried to, to translate this as Jesus was divine. But again, if, if John wanted to say that, there's a really easy way to say that. You use an adjective. You use a descriptive word rather than a noun. John doesn't use an adjective. He uses a noun. He says, the word was God. Not the word was godlike or had the qualities of deity. And ultimately, to translate 
this verse and that little phrase as the word was a God is inconsistent because look with me at verse 6. There was a man sent from God. There's no article there either. So should it be translated, there was a man sent from a God? Or in verse 12, that but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's no the in the Greek. So should we say that to all who believe in Jesus, they can become children of a God? No. See, the grammatical possibilities don't necessarily uh, determine everything. We have to also think through theology and what was the author's intent. And then also think through and remember our discussion about that verb was. So John is saying that from eternity past, without a reference to a beginning point, he didn't say Jesus, the word became God. He said the word was God. And the point is that Jesus was and has always been with God and equal to God in eternity past. Uh, in uh, our church down in uh, Reseda, uh, there was uh, many, many times when people would come come by the church. Uh, and on one occasion, there was a, a Jehovah's Witness who was bringing a homeless man to us, trying to get us to uh, get help for this homeless man. And ultimately, I started talking with this uh, Jehovah's Witness, and I found that he was uh, a young man who had grown up uh, in the Jehovah's Witness church. The official name is the, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Uh, and so he had grown up in the church, but then he had gotten kicked out of the church because as a teenage, older teenager, he had fallen in with, with drugs. Uh, and so now, uh, I was kind of probing and talking, and usually uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they have the belief that they need to do good works to try and earn salvation. So I, so I talk with him, and that's what came about. He says he's, he's trying to help this homeless man out so that he can get enough good deeds to even just get back into the Jehovah's Witness church. And then maybe, once he's in the church again, he can do enough good deeds to earn his way to heaven. Uh, and so he and I are, are, are talking. We're, we're sitting in my office. And over the course of our discussion, guess what verse comes up? John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, hey, look, this is what my Bible says, that Jesus was a God. That's what I believe. And I said, okay, well... Well, let's just, let's sit here and talk about it. We talked a little bit about, you know, Greek grammar, but it's difficult to talk with him because he didn't understand all of the concepts of those. Let's just do this. Let's, let's pull up the YouVersion Bible app. Right? Have you ever heard of that application? They have like hundreds of uh, English Bible translations. So let's just, let's look at all of these different Bible translations and see how they translate this verse. Well, let's just look and see what they say. Uh, and we go through about the first 25. And guess how every single one of those translations, and I'd never heard of some of them, but every single one of them translates this verse as the word was God. And as we're going through all of these different translations, he's just looking, he's starting to get concerned and confused because he had grown up saying, hey, the New World Translation, which is the very special and specific translation that the Watchtower uh, Bible Tract and Tract Society uses, because they've translated it with a certain agenda. And I, and I just say, hey, so what, what's the likelihood that every single other person translates this verse one way, but only you and your church translate it this way? What's the likelihood that who, who's correct and incorrect? Is everybody else misunderstanding Greek? That's what I asked. And, and so he ultimately didn't, didn't uh, 
deny Jehovah's Witness and become a Christian, and I didn't have a, we, I wasn't able to get together with him after that. But but it really concerned him as he just looked at all of the different versions. I said, and I really just just hit that point of hey, why is there a difference in that translation? Why does that come about? And it's because there there's a theological agenda. They're they're changing and transforming who Jesus is. And when you do that, when you change who Jesus is, you end up with a different religion. All of the Christian uh, cults, all of the offshoots of Christianity, which would include Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and, and many others, all of them do two things. Okay, first, they will, they will add additional revelation. They'll bring something else into the Bible. They'll still, they won't deny the Bible. They'll say, oh yeah, the Bible's good, and we should read that, but they'll add something else to it. And then the second thing that they do is they change who Jesus is. Fundamentally, and any, if you do those two things, you end up with a different religion. And that's where we don't, you don't, we don't usually think of Islam as an offshoot of Christianity that took place uh, in the, the 6th century. We don't think of it that way. But if you, if you read history, people at that point in time didn't know how to categorize Islam. Is, is this Christianity? Is it, is it different? And now the trajectory uh, has gone on long enough that we know exactly what it is. It's something completely different. And, and the, one of the biggest issues in church history, that one of the things that almost split the church early on was a man named Arius. He was a, a bishop who began to teach. Forgive me for the, the theological uh, wording here, but this is what he said. He, but th- that there was once when he, speaking of Jesus, was not. Which is contradictory to what John is saying here. John's repeatedly saying there was never a point in time where Jesus didn't exist. And Arius is saying, hey, there was a point in time where Jesus wasn't existing. Arius would say Jesus became, but John the, the apostle says Jesus was. And we have to come to grips with this. We have to, to understand this. Because who Jesus is matters. It is of infinite importance to our faith. And these two verses clearly teach that Jesus is the eternal, preexistent, coexistent, second member of the Trinity. One pastor says that we can paraphrase these, paraphrase these verses that at the very beginning of creation and time, the Word was the perfect expression of God the Father, as the perfect expression of God the Father had already al- always existed. And this Word was in active communion with God, and this Word inherently shared the same nature as God. So like I said, this, this, this is a who is message. And this is a time for us to, to, to examine our own hearts, to examine our own minds and say, is this the Jesus that I believe in? Do I believe that he is God, that he is the creator of all things, as we'll see in verse 3, that he is therefore the ruler of all things, that he has claim to my life? Psalm 24, 1 points to creation that God made every single person in the world and says because God created everyone, he has authority over everyone. Psalm 24, 1, the, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it. And this is a similar claim that John the Apostle was making here. 
See, if, if Jesus is God, then we owe him everything. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our obedience, our worship, all of those things. In, in Luke uh, chapter 6, Jesus asks a, a great question of, of his disciples. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say? See, there's a matter of consistency here. If we view Jesus as being Lord, as being God, then what should we do? What's the big application? If we, if we view Jesus as God, as Lord, we need to obey him, follow him, submit every area of our life to him. And that's the big theological point that we have here. Not just that the preexistence and coexistence of Jesus. Those are important intellectual truths, but now where the rubber meets the road, do we believe that and will I submit to that? That is what we are now called to do, to act in response. Jesus gave his life for us. And now we see the full scope of what he did in sacrificing for us, coming from heaven, giving up glory with the Father, humbling himself to the point of being a man, which is also in and of itself just a a huge departure point, but then becoming a man most despised among all men, who would die on the cross. That God, that Jesus is the one who sacrificed his life for ours and now calls us to live for him. And that's what we are now called to do. Should we go and do that this week? Absolutely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we come to you with a desire to echo back to you your word with a desire to echo back who you are and what you have done. Lord Jesus, we look to you not as a created being, not as one who ever had a beginning, but as the eternal one, as God. And Lord Jesus, as God, you are worthy of our worship, our adoration, our praise, and we long to direct it to you. And as God, you are the one who is able to save us, to bring us into peace and reconciliation with God the Father. And Lord Jesus, we, we look at the relationship that you have with God the Father in eternity past, and we are humbled and amazed, Lord, by that relationship that you gave up, your willingness to sacrifice that relationship so that you might come to die for us, so that we might experience that relationship. You sacrificed that, you gave it up so that we could eventually have it, perfect fellowship with God the Father in heaven for eternity. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for that. And may we not always be just so caught up in looking for answers as we come to Scripture. Lord, help us to, at times like today, just come to the Word, to behold who you are, to humble our souls and worship you with adoration and praise. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and worship you, and lift up all of these things in your name. Amen.